Hey, 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 good to see you all. Man, oh man. My, I just dumped somebody's music sheets. Hopefully they'll be able to play music last part of the night. Man, I don't know about you all, what your all's word was for spring break, but mine was, I'm curious anybody else, anybody else put the word tiring on their little, when they were like, hey, what's your word for spring break? Because I was worn out. Uh, we jumped all over America. Caleb and I went on a Colorado trip. I hear we have a few Colorado people out there. And then we went, we flew from Colorado. One night got out of there. Caleb was playing. My son uh, was playing in the, uh, this national basketball tournament. And uh, so we flew. We left. We skied all day. Sunday, Monday, then flew to Missouri. Landed in Kansas City midnight. Then had a three-plus-hour drive to get to our hotel in Springfield where the tournament was. Got to bed about four. Caleb had a basketball game at eight uh, that morning. So he looked like a zombie his first game. I felt like dad guilt out there. I like, felt like I was abusing him. But he, he wanted to go and had a great time, played really well. I was proud of him. We won four out of five games, but to be national champs, we had to win five out of five. So um, it was close. It was good. I, the one moment I will say as a dad where I was kind of like both laughing and like, uh, Caleb. Uh, so the team we lost, we lost to a team from Memphis, and uh, we, we were up the half. They made a run us in the third quarter, got ahead. Uh, we come out in the fourth. We, we try to kind of push back. Caleb was playing great. He scored 11 in the fourth alone and uh, hit some threes. And he got fouled on the way to the hoop on this one, made the basket, and this team had this cheering section. I mean, they had a couple hundred fans there from Memphis who had traveled over, and they were like chanting everything about, you know, missing free throws and everything. They had team chants worked out. And Caleb makes the free throw on his three point play, and then he turns to the crowd and does this. And, <laughs> and he's in, told him afterwards, he's like, don't interact with the crowd, buddy. Just keep it on the court. I'll give you a mulligan. And he goes, what's a mulligan? Uh, it means I'll give you a do-over. Don't, don't do that again. But it was, it was a great time. We only have six weeks left of this school year. Can you all believe that? Six weeks left. Actually, after tomorrow, you got five weeks of school left after tomorrow. So you got five weeks in finals. We are almost, we are almost there. But before we are done with this school year, I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you on an adventure. I, we just took trips all over America. Great trips, great adventures. But I want to invite you on maybe the most important adventure CSF has asked all year for you to be a part of. I think going on adventures and road trips, I think it's just part of our DNA. It's just part of who we are. It's certainly part of our country's heritage as well. Anybody know Lewis, the Lewis and Clark expedition? You all remember that from history class? Maybe the most famous adventure road trip in American history. It lasted, started in August of 1803, went to September of 1806. So for three years, they, they went across the country. And actually, interesting enough, it started in Kentucky. Lewis and Clark met right outside on the Ohio River, right outside Louisville, Kentucky. If we claim Louisville, I suppose we do. Um, a, few, a few Bill 502 chants. But, you know, it started, they actually met right there, and they started on this three-year, you know, three-year journey across America, traveling over 8,000 miles, two dozen people. It was commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson, who wanted to see what was out there. We didn't even know what was out there in the, in the middle of America, and they, they took this enormous trip. Uh, you know, so many of the things they discovered, they discovered 178 new kinds of plants that no one ever knew existed. They found 122 different kinds of animals. No one ever even knew what a grizzly bear was. They'd seen kind of little brown bears, and these 
these monster grizzly bears. President Jefferson even privately wondered to some people that wondered if they were gonna find woolly mammoths. They, they were thinking maybe these things still existed on Earth. They didn't know what was out there, and they kept going and going. And this summer, anybody been to Yellowstone? Any Yellowstone people? Family this summer and seen, even though they didn't go through Yellowstone proper, but seen just some of that stuff, just that sense of adventure, that sense of just this amazing road trip, getting to see these incredible things, God's incredible creation. What an amazing trip. What an amazing adventure. 1982, though, a little bit of a different adventure took place. This time, instead of going across the country, someone went way up above our country. The guy's name was Larry Walters. 1982, Larry lived in Southern California. And Larry decided that, you know, he was like, you know, I'm just kind of sitting here. Uh, he had been a truck driver for a while. He was kind of just bored with life. And he decided he wanted to see, kind of just maybe peer in on some of his neighbors, maybe look into their backyards or whatever. And so Larry went out and he bought 45 weather balloons. You know, these really kind of weather balloons, they send way, they're capable of going way up into the atmosphere. And they measure different weather things, send back readings, and, and meteorologists use these things. Well, Larry went out and bought 45 of them, and he got in his lawn chair in his yard, and he sat down in his lawn chair, and he had some friends help him, and he tied 45 weather balloons to his lawn chair. And, and Larry thought maybe, hey, I'll go up and hover and be able to see my neighbors, and, and when I'm ready to come down, I'll, I'll take, he actually had a little pellet gun with him, and he thought, okay, when I'm ready to come down, I'll just start shooting the balloons down, and I'll kind of lower down to the ground. Well, Larry, when, you know, kind of three, two, one, let Larry go happened on the lawn chair, Larry didn't just shoot up, you know, hovering above his neighbor's lawns at about 50 feet. Larry shot up to over 16,000 feet in the air. He got into the flight patterns of airports in the, in the Los Angeles area. The, the people were called, two different airliners reported, hey, uh, looking outside our window here, and there's a guy in our lawn chair at uh, 16,000 feet. So he's, he's up here in, in 16,000 feet, he's up there. And, and to make matters worse, finally he kind of got his nerve, I'm sure white knuckled it all the way up, but he starts hovering and he, and he gets his pellet gun and he starts shooting a few of the balloons to try to start lowering. And then he fumbles his pellet gun and, and he drops earth and eventually, 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 Larry actually got down to the ground safely. He actually got tangled up in power lines on the way down there and, uh, and was arrested uh, when, when they got him because he had broken all kinds of aviation uh, laws in our country and the like. But one of the reasons when Larry was interviewed, when they asked Larry, Larry, what in the world were you doing? And one of his reported remarks that he said to people was, and I love the understatement, but, but he said, well, you can't just sit there. You can't just sit there. You can't just sit there and let life pass you by. You gotta go out, you gotta look for adventure, you gotta go do something, you can't just sit there. And I think it is such an incredible word if we would let Larry Walter speak to us tonight. Such an incredible word for us is that we can't just sit there. I mean, the reality is you and I are on a journey. We are on a journey. You're on a journey right now. You've been on a journey your whole life. And maybe you didn't realize you were on a journey, but certainly in college, you're on a journey. You're headed to some sort of destination. We're headed to all kinds of destinations in this room. Maybe for some of you, you're on the destination where you're chasing a career. And the end of what you're after is you're like, hey, I want a career because I want a job that I can enjoy. I, I want to make a good salary. I want to have a good living. I want to chase money. I want, I want, you know, kind of buy some things, afford a nice, easy life. You're kind of chasing down that. And that's why you're studying hard and you're out there 
there kind of working hard because you want that, that career. Or maybe it's relationships you're chasing after. Or maybe, you know, crazy college memories. You date a lot of people, you attend a lot of parties. Man, I just want to chase down and have as many kind of crazy experiences and fun as I can. Pursuing pleasure in the here and now, that's kind of your journey. Or maybe it's the journey of just adventures and experiences, like some of the trips we just took. Man, you're just like, man, I can't wait to the next road trip. I just want to stamp my passport as many places as I can. If I can just take in as many experiences. We're all pursuing something. We're all going after something. But if you ask people, if you ask people who've been on the journey maybe a little longer than you have and have maybe experienced some things and taken in some things, I think the job, and they've had the great job, they've made tons of money, they've had all kinds of career success, they would tell you in an honest moment that money doesn't buy happiness. Or you could ask the, the Hollywood star or the sports star, man, who they can have any relationship they want with basically whoever they want. And you ask them, you know, what's, tell me about your life. I think it's so many of them would report unhappiness, a long list of discarded and broken relationships. Or you ask people who, man, their past, where they've gone to places all over the world, had all kinds of adventures, traveling. And you ask them, man, what about you? And they're like, man, if I could just go to that one more place, that one more destination, then I think I'd be happy. But the human heart doesn't work like that. It just doesn't work like that. We long for something very unique to fill our hearts. I suspect the thing that fills your pockets right now for many of you or it's sitting beside you is your phone, your so-called phone. They're really just tiny little computers. But the guy who invented the, the world, many people think, invented the world's first computer was a guy named Blaise Pascal. There's actually even a programming language still that's called Pascal that's named after him. Blaise Pascal lived in the 1600s. So 400 years ago, many people, as they look through the, the history of machinery and computers, they actually give him some credit for inventing the world's first computer. It was a little calculator type of device that he invented. But Pascal, as much as he was a great scientist, great mathematician, he was also a very devoted Christian. And Pascal, when he died, they found this collection of notes that he was writing called Ponces. Ponces is just, he was French, it's just French for thoughts. And he had this random collection of thoughts about God. And, and, and the, they scooped them all together and put them into a book. You can still, you can go out to any, most any bookstore and pick it up. But one of his Ponces, one of his thoughts was this is that Pascal recognized, he lived in a time in which, you know, decadence, uh, you know, partying, living it up in, in, in French life was, was all the rage. And Pascal said, in, in his thoughts they found in, in his little journals after he died, Pascal said this, he said, each of us, and you may have heard this before, each of us has this God-shaped hole, this God-shaped hole in our lives, in our hearts, that only God looked for anything and everything to fill it. But the reality is, is that only God can fill that hole in our hearts. We'll look for that one more relationship, that one more night of drinking, that one more dollar to be made, that one more trip, that one more friend, whatever it is. All these things are good things. But if we try to shove them in that place in our lives where only God is meant to be, they'll be mishandled. The gifts themselves are destroyed, and we are destroyed. You know, we were meant, ultimately, for this place called Eden. This place where you read the opening pages of the Bible and you see that we're meant for this place of beauty, this place of intimacy, this place of, of perfection and goodness. We're meant for this place where you know, relationships are, are, are to be enjoyed, relationships with other people, and ultimately a relationship with God. But because of sin, we have, we've left that place. We've left the place that was our home. 
And I think that's a deep part of why we long for road trips, why we long for adventure, why we feel this sense of like something is not right. Something, I need to be someplace else. I need to, to experience something else. It's because we have this echo of Eden in our hearts where we go, this is not my home. The place I am right now in my life is not my home. We need to get back home. And so here comes Jesus. And Jesus calls us in that passage tonight that we read. He calls us to come back home to us, come back home to himself. Jesus is standing here. He's calling us and saying, don't just sit there, as, as Larry was telling us. Don't sit there. Let's go on this journey together. You know, in that Mark 3 passage, I love, there's this beautiful detail where Jesus is saying, come follow me. Come be my disciple. And, and you may have missed it. I missed it for years, actually. I'd been a Christian for several years and, and, until I caught this. Someone pointed it out to me, and, and it radically transformed my understanding of who God is and, and why he calls me. Because it's easy for a lot of us to think he really needs us, that God needs us to, you know, to, to spread the gospel. God needs us to show love in, in the world. God needs us to you know, tell people about it. all those kinds of things. But the detail that Mark gives us that was just read here tonight, did you catch who Jesus called? Mark 3.13, that passage we read, there's this beautiful tiny detail. Mark's the shortest of all the Gospels, the four kind of biographies of Jesus that the Bible has. Mark's the shortest, and so sometimes he gives us just the tiniest little detail. But if you just sit with it a while, you go, oh my goodness. The detail that Mark gives us in just that short little passage, he says, Jesus called... Jesus called to himself those whom he wanted. Jesus called to himself those whom he wanted. God didn't need you to create the universe. He, he took care of all of that, that enormous job. He took care of that on his own. You look at, you know, even rescuing his people. You know, read the stories in the Bible. You look at, you know, like when uh, God delivers the people from Egypt. And Pharaoh's got him under his thumb, and he's, he's there. And, and you know what? who does God use? God actually uses Pharaoh. God uses the guy who hated him, who hated his people, who was against his purposes. God can use whoever he wants. In, in fact, God can do whatever he wants without using anybody at all because he's God. God doesn't need you, and that is so important for you to hear. But God wants you. God wants you. He hungers for you. He wants a relationship of intimacy with you. He wants you to know his heart. He, he already knows your heart. He just wants this to be an, an intimate, loving, best friend, but he's still God kind of relationship. It's kind of like the difference of, you know, if anybody, anybody an A student in chemistry? Anybody good at chemistry around here? I know you are because you tutor people um, and charge a lot of money for it. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, if somebody, if somebody comes up to you, whatever the class is, maybe it's, and they, they go up to you and say, hey, I hear you're an A student in chemistry. Could we study together? Like, you know, guys, let's say some girl comes up to you, or girl, say some boy comes up to you and goes, hey, can we study together? And you're like going, okay, this is, this is interesting, maybe. Um, let's, let's assume they're really cute, okay? Um, not just some creeper, and you're going, oh, please, don't ask me. Um, I'm dropping the class tomorrow. Um, <laughs> But somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you, you may, you're making an A in chemistry, right? And you're going, yeah, hey, I've got, a, I've got an A. I'd like to make an A too. Could, could we study together? You're going, well, 
okay, maybe, you know, um, call me maybe, but um, I, bad, I'm sorry. My kids were listening to that song the other day, and it's in my head, and I was like, oh, I don't even like Carly Rae Jepsen. Um, but, but, you know, so you say, okay, yeah, fine, you want to study with me. That's one thing, because you, you sense intuitively they need you, right? They want to get an A. You're an A student. They need you. But if somebody comes up and they know, like, hey, you're a C-minus student at best. You're like, yes, I didn't fail one of the chemistry tests. And they come up to you and go, hey, you want to study? You know it's an entirely different thing. You're like, okay, it's on. She likes me. You know, here we go. Uh, we're going for tacos or whatever we're doing uh, after studying. But, um, or Waffle House. That's where I took Shelby on our first date. So, um, yeah, that's right. There you go. Guys, I don't recommend that just for the record. Men, please listen. Don't take girls to Waffle House. Don't do as I do. Do as I say. Um, See, I get myself in these problems, and then I have to think, okay, how in the world? All right, let's pray for a second. Let's pray and, and get everybody back, to, back on task here. Here's the thing. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants you. God wants you. He wants you on this incredible journey with him. And when I say incredible journey, I mean the most amazing journey you can possibly ever. So many of us sell. You, you hear this story of like, okay, God wants me on this journey. Okay, what's he want? He wants to forgive me of my sins. He wants me to, you know, read the Bible, you know, read a, read a chapter each day. He wants me to, you know, maybe say a prayer or two before I go to sleep. Uh, you know, he wants me to go to church, maybe give a little money, you know, that sort of thing. That's what we think God wants. And I just want to say, no, no, no. Well, yes, 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 but no, no, no. What God wants is so much incredibly more. Just like a road trip across, I mean, it's, it's, it would be the akin of like, man, my road trip is about, you know, gassing up my car and, you know, buying supplies for the road trip and whatever. And you're like, ooh, look at all the supplies we've got. Look at the cool gas pumps. Yeah, that's great, but get out on the road. Experience life with God. That's what God is calling us to. He wants so much more for your life. He wants so much more for you than you can even imagine. Listen to this incredible passage by one of the most famous sermons. You can Google it, look it up online. It was preached during World War II by C.S. Lewis in Oxford, England. And Lewis preached this amazing sermon. It's called The Weight of Glory. The weight of glory. So many people, I've read it, I can't even remember countless times now how many times I've read this sermon. The weight of glory. This is what Lewis says about what God wants to make of your life. What he says in this sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says this. I think we have it up on, a, on, a, on the screen here. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Forgive the exaggeration there, but of possible gods and goddesses, the serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day, by God's grace and transformation, be a creature which, if you saw it right now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else it would be a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare." All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and the circumstance to conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. 
and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Lewis is saying if you could get a glimpse of what God wants to do in your life, your neighbor's life, your parent's life, your whoever's life it is, you would see, if you could just see the possibilities, you would be tempted to go, oh my goodness. I had no idea a person could be that incredible. When God gets in a person's life, and that's what you're reacting to, you're not reacting to the incredibleness of that person in and of themselves. You're reacting to when God gets in his life. The, the scripture says that Jesus comes actually in us. When we see, when Jesus comes to live in us, and we start to, to be transformed. I love what my friend Kurt Vernon says. He says, God's destination for you, the, the end of the journey for you, what God wants to do with your life is he wants to make you into an identical twin of Jesus. Identical twins, that's what God is up to. He wants to make you into this being that so looks like Jesus that it is an identical, identical resemblance to Jesus. God wants to transform your life, and his power can do it. It can do it in ways you can't even imagine. One of, one of the people on spring break, we were sharing some stories. Someone said they were with some guys, and he didn't share who this was, so I don't know who this person is. But one of the people in, in a group on spring break, some guys were sharing about you know, past struggles or current struggles with porn and this sort of thing. And one of, the, one of the guys just remarked, he said, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that God could defeat pornography in my life. I'd never heard a story of somebody, uh, of porn being defeated in someone's life. And I'm going, yes, God can defeat. That's only the beginning of what God wants to do in your life, of the journey that God wants to take you on. That's the road trip. You know, the Bible's word for really this road trip is discipleship. Discipleship, becoming a disciple of Jesus, just walking in behind his steps and learning from him and following him and saying, Jesus, make me like you. And he will, he can you see what he did with those incredible disciples. They were just a bunch of ragtag bunch of fishermen. But did you see in that Mark 3 passage that was read earlier, Jesus gave them the power not just to catch fish and be better fishermen. God turned them into people who could resist the very powers of hell and could cast out demons. They had such incredible power because of God's grace in their lives. And that's what I want for CSF. I want God raising people up in here who are kingdom warriors, people who are beautiful, strong, loving, fierce. That is what God wants for us. He doesn't just want us to survive college. He wants us to thrive and to conquer anything that we encounter here. This week, uh, this weekend, part of the reason I was so tired was uh, we traveled, we came back from Missouri, we got back about uh, a little after midnight on Friday night, Saturday morning, and uh, that next morning, uh, drove out to the airport around lunchtime and picked up my friend Veer. Veer, uh, I've only gotten to see Veer three times in the last, uh, what, 23 years now. Uh, Veer and I met in India in 1999. Veer uh, was in, had grown up in this orphanage that myself and a few friends uh, spent Christmas of 1999. We packed up a bunch of supplies and toys and various things, and we, we went over there and spent Christmas uh, of that year with them. And Veer had just, he had, he had finished up at the orphanage, and the orphanage 
They had a school. They actually even had a Bible college, and Veer was a Bible college student at that time. He was about, you know, early 20s, and, and I was about 27 at that time, and he, he literally was a few years younger than me, but he, he just felt like my younger brother. From, from the moment I met him, it was just this just very unique bond. Times in the past 23 years, we stay in touch, we email. He pray, I mean, Veer is like, every single day, I pray for your family. I pray for you. I pray for Shelby. I pray for your kids. We pray together as a family. We get together. We pray for you all. But Veer's story is really unique. In fact, Veer told me, uh, I did not know this detail until he was here. Do you all know who Chuck Norris is? Anybody, you know who Chuck Norris is? Veer told me Chuck Norris's family is trying to make a story of his life, uh, which is so random and so odd. Uh, but yeah, I was like, really? Chuck Norris? He's making, he's like, yeah, his granddaughters have come to, have come to my orphanage and school in India a few times now, and, and I've gotten to know the family. And, and, and they, they want to, I mean, Veer is so humble about it all. And he's like, yeah, they, they were going to maybe try to start doing a script and shooting him, then COVID and everything. But at any rate, Veer's story. Veer grew up this orphanage, you know, went to the Bible college. You, you could see, and the guy who had started the Bible college, started the, the, uh, the orphanage and everything, and is who Veer would refer to as father. I mean, he was his adopted father of all these orphans at the orphanage. But uh, he kind of, he came to Veer and said, hey, Veer, I see something in you. God's given you some really unique gifts. I think you're the person that I'm going to, to raise up and I'm going to hand, you know, pass the baton to and let you run. Eventually, I'm going to train you to run the orphanage, to run the school, to run the Bible college. I, I'm appointing you as my successor. An incredible honor for a kid who grew up at an orphanage in the middle of India. And Veer said, thank you. Thank you, sir. You know, sir. Thank you, sir. He always says, sir. Thank you, sir. But no. And he said, he said the guy was shocked. He said he even slammed his hand on the, on, on the table. Well, go then, you know, and, and, and Veer left. And the reason Veer said no was because Veer had been coming back in India on a, on a mission trip there uh, that they were going within India, and they were passing out, you know, Bibles and tracts and whatever, and they were beaten. They were beaten by a mob. He said they even beat the women that were with us too, and they, they took our tracks and our Bible, and they threw them, threw them in a pile and burned them all right in front of us. He said it was on that trip we passed in a city of about you know, four or 500,000, uh, and, and, and he said, just the Lord told me, he spoke very clear to me, you know, go, that's the place you're supposed to go to. And so Veer, even though he'd been given this opportunity to, to lead and to be you know, kind of a success in the world's eyes, of Veer, here's all these people, here's all these, these buildings, the Bible college, the orphanage, the school, I'm going to let you run it. Veer said, no, this is not what God has for me. God's calling me, and he walked away, and he got on a bus. He, everything he owned in the world, he could carry in one little suitcase, and he went to that little town that, that he was called, or this, it was, it's grown over the time, but he went to this town, and, and he got off a bus. He said, I got there around uh, 4 a.m., he said, and I waited till the morning, he said, I just started knocking on doors to see if anybody would rent me a room, just a room to stay in. He said they'd ask me two questions. Uh, you know, do you know anyone here in the city? No, I don't. What religion are you? I'm a Christian. No, thank you. You don't know anybody. We don't know you. You're not, you're not Hindu. Uh, we're not going to rent you a place. Knocked on door after door after door after door. Shut, 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 shut. Eventually, he finds one person who says, I'll give you a tiny little room. And so Veer starts uh, his, his ministry there in this city. And you fast forward, uh, you fast forward 20-some years later, and Veer has, uh, he has a church, he has his own orphanage, he has uh, one of the best, most prestigious schools now in that area. Out of 450 schools in his area, only five are recognized by the federal government of India uh, for their academic excellence. Veer's is one of those schools. 
And Veer was at, at this uh, city where he was living. And one day at his office, a few years back, he heard a commotion at the gate. He looks outside, and there's a crowd, and they're ripping down his gate. And then they get into the second gate, and they cut his phone line as well, so he couldn't call the authorities. And they, they, were, they, were gonna, they had come to kill Veer. And they had bought, and Veer said they bought hydrochloric acid. They were going to throw this on him, kill him, and, and they did not want him as a Christian running this Christian school, this Christian orphanage, all of this there in their city, and they came to kill him. And, and thankfully, by, by the grace of God, some women saw this, whose children were at the school, and they were able to call the authorities. The authorities came, Veer, we're going to come back for you. If you don't shut this school down, we're coming back for you, and we're going to kill you. And Veer said, he said, man, my, my heart was, and he shared this story just earlier this week with our staff. Uh, Veer said, you know, my heart is, as, a, as a person, of course, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to, to flee. I wanted to run. I didn't want my kids to grow up as orphans. I knew the pain of that. And Veer told his wife, I, I, I want to leave. We, I, I don't want to die. I don't want our kids to go through this. And this is part of why you marry someone who loves the Lord, because they will strengthen you and they will challenge you. They will, they, when your knees get weak, they will help you. Veer's wife, Blessy, she says, we're not leaving. If we die, we'll meet in heaven, and God will take care of our children. What an incredible woman. And Veer's like, okay, if my, wife, if my wife's not scared, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we need to stay. And they stayed, and, and, and by a whole series of, uh, of you know, things, they, they were safe. A couple of years later, Veer has a knock at his door at his office. Yes, come in. It's the leader of the gang who had come to kill Veer. And he said, uh, Veer said, sit down. He said, I won't sit down. He said, well, sit down. He said, no, I won't sit down until you forgive me. <laughs> and, and the way that Veer says it, he's like, I, you know, he says, I need you to forgive me. And he said, for what? You haven't done anything to me. He said, well, we came with the intention to kill you. He said, well, I'm here. I'm alive. I don't, I don't need to forgive you. He said, no, no, no. I won't sit down until you say forgive me. Okay, fine. I forgive you. Now sit down. He says, so he sat down. He said, what do you want? He said, what can I do for you? He said, my children want to come to your school. Veer said, okay, we'll work it out. We'll make it because it's, very, it's a very competitive school at this point, although Veer lets in certain people just because he's like, hey, I, that person needs to be at our school. I want them to come in. But in terms of general admittance, it's a very competitive school. The guy's kids could not get into the school. Veer let them in the school. The guy who came to kill Veer, now when they do crusades in the city and have sometimes you know, a couple thousand people will come, that man comes because he's known as one of the gang leaders in the city, that guy comes 30 minutes before their crusades. Their, he comes and he sits at the gate. And if people of trouble come in the city, he says, no, you're not coming here today. And he's known as a guy you don't want to mess with. Uh, and they leave. And he stays throughout the whole event. He stays till about 30 minutes after the event's over. And then he goes home. Everything he does, he now runs security. Volunteer runs security. Veer does not pay him. Volunteer security for Veer. Absolutely incredible to see the adventure that God has taken this young orphan to now having one of the most prestigious schools, to have dozens of orphans who now Veer and his wife have adopted on their own and have now sent them out across India into universities paying for college and doing all the things they do for them. It is absolutely incredible to see. And the reason I wanted Veer to share his story, and he's already, he's in Texas now. His son may be coming to the United States to study in, in Dallas. But uh, the reason I had him share his story with our staff was because I wanted our staff to see that the same God who called Veer in his adventure, 
The same God who empowered him, the same God who protected him, the same God that, that has transformed his heart to where he would say, okay, fine, if I die, I die. That same God is here with us. That same God who empowered those initial disciples that Jesus, Jesus could have done, he could have used anybody, but Jesus wanted them and he called them. That same God is still calling us here. He's calling you here tonight. And, and I want to start tonight, and we're going to be talking about this over the next few weeks. David's going to be up here next week talking about this some more. But I want to invite you tonight to begin anew. And maybe it is just kind of a new starting path for you. Because all of us, you know, as followers, we have these ups and downs, these times where we have to go, Jesus, I said yes then, but I need to say yes again. I need to, to look at you afresh and say, Jesus, I said then I want to follow. Whatever year, whatever month, whatever week that was, I want to say it again tonight. And that's what I want to invite you all into because at CSF, you know, I, I want to invite you tonight. David and Lydia are going to come up in just a second. And I want to invite you again. We, we do this each year where we say, hey, I want you to put your name down on a piece of paper tonight and say, I want in on that adventure with Jesus. I want in on that adventure with Jesus. Maybe you aren't in a CSF group at all right now, and you go, hey, sign me up. We've got five, six more weeks. Sign me up. Finals are coming. I need all the help I can get. Uh, sign me up to get closer to God. Uh, or you just say, hey, yeah, I'm in a group. I'm in CSF's discipleship plan. We are making some upgrades, and, and I Wish I could give you more details, but just we are working as hard as we've ever worked. And we've been praying, we've been meeting for hours on end to say, how can we make and encourage people to be disciples of Jesus? We're not doing away. I know some people are like, are you doing away with groups? No, we're keeping groups. We, we want friendship groups to form here. People support each other. But next year, we are working to make the discipleship process here as strong as it's ever been. And I want to invite you all in on that adventure of following Jesus. You know, that Lewis and Clark, that Lewis and Clark adventure, one of the greatest adventures this country's ever seen, started here in Kentucky. And I just wonder if even tonight, God wants to start some incredible adventures here in Kentucky. Adventures that, in the perspective of eternity, make you know, Lewis and Clark's adventure a walk in the park. The grand adventure of being called by Jesus of being loved by Jesus, of following Jesus, of being transformed by Jesus. That's the adventure that God's calling you to, and that's the adventure I'm calling you all to tonight. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you call us. You don't want us to just sit there. You have called us to, to live this enormous life of adventure. And yes, there are hard parts. There are, thinking of my brother Veer, there are scary parts. But God, you have promised to be with us. You have promised that that adventure will be one that is worth it. Even though it may have its tough moments, moments of, uh, of, of fear. But Lord, I pray, I pray tonight that, that anyone in here who can hear my voice would also hear your voice of saying, Come, follow me. I want you. I want to transform your life. I want to make you into someone that, that you think you're saddled by anxieties and fears and phobias. And God, you want to set them free from that. And so I pray that they would say yes. They'd say, Jesus, I, I, I will trust you to lead me out of this. 
And so, Jesus, I just pray that even tonight, as, as we give an opportunity for people to say yes, I pray that you give them an opportunity. You give them the, the guts and the courage to follow you, Jesus, because that really is the best adventure we can ever be on, is the adventure of following you and living life with you.